Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain here with the No Film School podcast for the first full day of the Joseph Robinette Biden administration. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. We are going to be talking about Twitter's feelings about old Russell Crowe movies. We're going to be talking about what the superhero genre gets wrong and how the boys get it right. We are going to be talking about... Uh, is China not only ripping off technology, are they also ripping off IP? And I think that's a really interesting place to be for the market. Then we're going to be wrapping up with not one, but two tech stories this week, but they're tech stories relevant to everybody. One, can you make an artificial sun for like a thousand dollars and does it look good? And two, Wi-Fi six is here. Should you care as a filmmaker? All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, our top story this week, Twitter decided, and and note when I say Twitter, I mean all of Twitter, every single Twitter user agreed in one moment, or actually one person said on Twitter, hey, if you want to go to sleep, watch Master and Commander, and (laughs) the rest of Twitter simultaneously decided that that person was being kind of a dick, and that Master and Commander was a really good movie. Um, What's interesting about this is it is yet another reminder that there is no universal taste. And that um, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing we all agree on. There's not a single movie that everybody can, Ghostbusters is maybe the one that comes closest where the most number of people will be like, yeah, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters good. But like, you know, Ferris Bueller has haters. <laughs> it's funny to think of someone who hates Ghostbusters, but it's also funny to think of Ghostbusters as being some example of universal, something that's universally liked because it's such an odd out of the box movie that no one, you know, every attempt to make something universally liked always feels flat. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. So I don't want to get too far afield from the the real story here, which is Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Which you consider to be a classic of its age? I wrote this up. I don't write a lot of things up on No Film School, just time permitting and stuff. But like I, when I saw over the, I am on text threads where we talk we have cycles of conversations. And one thing we constantly return to is how great master and commander, the far side of the world was and how sad it is that we didn't get 19 other sequels to that movie because it's a 20 book series by Patrick O'Brien about captain Jack Aubrey played by Russell Crowe and the ship's surgeon who is played by Paul Bettany. I loved the movie, saw it in 2003 when it came out, had a poster of it on my wall. Like, I really liked it. I like seafaring adventure epics. I like historical nonfiction. This is historical fiction, but I just loved everything about it. Like, it's my kind of movie. And I think it's extremely well made. Um, It was an expensive movie. Russell Crowe was at the time on a run of classic movies that he was starring in that were really good and he was really good in them and this one fits right in look i'm fine with people hating stuff that i love i hate a lot of stuff that people love like that's taste like you said like nobody agrees but this guy added he called out russell crowe which i actually like you know we all do it i've done it like (laughs) i'll take to twitter to blast something random And I've even done it and had people come back at me like this and be like, hey, that's not cool. But this guy did it with Russell Crowe and Russell Crowe was like, hey, this is what's wrong. I think here's the quote from Russell Crowe when he retweeted the 
the fellow who said it was boring. Um, he said, that's the problem with kids these days. No focus. Peter Weir's film is brilliant and exacting, detail-oriented, epic tale of fidelity to empire and service, regardless of the cost. Incredible. By the way, can't you just hear this in Russell Crowe's voice, not mine? It's so Russell Crowe-y. Incredible cinematography by Russell Boyd and a majestic soundtrack. Definitely an adult's movie. I agree with Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's, you know, got into some trouble picking fights with people in his day, but he's an awesome actor and movie star. And I, I'm on his side. And that's why I wanted to write it up because I love the movie. But I would also add, and this is where I think I took the write up on No Film School when I wrote it, and I think is an interesting point, is that to me, 2003, there was an inflection point because Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World came out, but so did Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. They are both boat movies, but they're on opposite ends of the sea, so to speak. And one of them is based on a 16-minute theme park ride, which I also love, by the way. Not, not putting that down. But the other is based on a 20-book series of novels. And we got endless sequels. I believe there's even reboots happening to this day from the Pirates ride one. And we never got any more about Master and Commander, which had tons of solid source material. And I think, like, I understand the economics of why, you know, Disney, Bruckheimer, you know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons. But personally, as a film fan, this is one of those things that I look at and I'm sad be over because to me, Master and Commander was a, was a franchise that should have been um, and was also just an excellent film. Whereas the Pirates of the Caribbean is like fun, but I don't think you need any more. I think I think they wrung every drop out of that rag that they could in the first movie. And I just don't think they had much more to do. But, you know, that's why I'm not a studio executive. So I'm curious what you think of the movie. Um, I respect your opinion, obviously, but it feels like a lot of people came out of the woodwork to jump behind it because it is a much loved film. So weirdly, I've never seen it, but I had just added it to my to watch list because I'm listening to this like the Age of Napoleon podcast, this like hundred part podcast about the history of the Napoleonic era. That's really great. If anybody is looking for a very long podcast, that that's been my uh, commuting podcast lately. And he loved Master and Commander: Far Shot of the World, and specifically went out of his way to praise the casting of Russell Crowe, which he thought was really appropriate and unfairly maligned by fans of the books. So I was like, oh, I've never seen that and I've heard nothing. I had heard nothing but good things. The only criticism I had heard was a sound design buddy of mine saw it and was like, it really seemed like the director fell in love with the temp score there, which is a expression you will hear sometimes when, I mean, you know, the most famous example is 2001, Kubrick cut to Holtz's The Planets and then decided that he liked the temp score so much that even though he had a whole score composed, he threw it out. And so a lot of times, like music nerds, sound design nerds, if they see a movie that has too much like cla original classical music or move music from other movies, they, they get this suspicion that the director fell in love with the temp score instead of working with a uh, original score. And that was his note about Master and Commander, which is not something that would normally put someone to sleep. I just want to note that that's a fascinating comment because a few people, so this is not something I thought of because I'm not typically as score sensitive as a moviegoer, but I try, I'm always trying to learn more about things to be aware of or, or appreciate or 
malign, but, but Leo E, who's a writer and a no film school user, his, his comment on the story was uh, long, but it included, it is a really excellent film and should be watched by every film student due to, in addition to everything said above, it's use of classical music. There are not many movies that use classical music in a way that is noticed, but it is also subtle and not overwhelmingly screaming. We're using classical movie music. Sorry, we're cultured. So I appreciate the comment. It's an interesting take. He particularly liked the way it used classical music, but I never considered that something like that could be a result of loving a temp score and just saying, man, there's no way we're going to replicate it. So let's just use the classical music. It's a great reminder that everybody in every niche has such deep domain level knowledge. They watch a film differently. Like for when I was a full-time colorist, when I watched a movie, because I was coloring 60 hours a week, when I watched a movie, I could not help but bring this like deep thinking about its color in a way that like now I watch a movie and I notice little things about the color, but not nearly as much as when I was 60 hours a week deep into it. And I imagine the same thing is true for composers and sound designers. The thing I really like about this is that it seems like an interesting 2002, 2003 was really the split in pop culture. Like the nineties saw way more big budget, serious adult movies. And adult, and I'm not saying adult, yeah, like yes. there's a nude Russell Crowe scene, although there might be. A <laughs> yeah. The way that, the way that Russell Crowe used adult in his tweet where he said it's an adult's movie. Yeah. Adult's and, movie as opposed to adult movie. <laughs> and in the 90s, there were a lot of, like every year, there were a couple of movies with huge budgets aimed squarely at adults. In 2003, with Pirates versus Master and Commander, you know, Pirates, uh, I have a friend who's, or not a friend, I know a guy who's an executive I remember we were at a dinner around that time and he talked, he went on and on about how Pirates was the perfect four quadrant movie because they had uh, Jack Sparrow with Johnny Depp for everybody over 25. And then for the under 25 boys, they had Keira Knightley. And for the under 25 girls, they had, um, not Will Oldham, the other guy, uh, Legolas. And, and it was like the perfectly set up to hit all of the four quadrants perfectly in a way that like Master and Commander it doesn't seem as likely that in anywhere in the pre-production of Master and Commander, anyone was like, all right, are we making sure we tag all four quadrants? Do we need to add like, <laughs> a, yeah, like you know what I mean? Whereas like on Pirates, that was definitely, it, it was planned. It was thought about. It was, we have to ensure that we are hitting all four of the markets in order to make this successful. And it was designed that way. And so, you know, I know a lot of people who are like, ah, oh, you know, I, I really enjoyed the Johnny Depp bits, but I got really bored with the Will Turner stuff. And it's like, well, the Will Turner stuff wasn't for you. There are a whole bunch of teenage girls that love the Will Turner stuff and, and didn't like the Jack uh, Sparrow stuff. So it's, it's a different kind of thing, Pirates. And I think seeing those two movies head to head is really the difference between like a broad-based Marvel, Disney, I'm going to make this appealing to the most number of people possible, and Master and Commander that's like, there's going to be people who like this, and we're going to make it for them. And then there's going to be, I actually, honestly, I'm going to wrap this up with this. I think it's a good thing that movie put you to sleep. The fact that that movie put you to sleep means that you are not its <laughs> target's audience, and it did not care. It said, I'm yeah. going to make it specifically for the people who dig this and they're going to love it. And if you're not one of the people who love it, you go to sleep. And I like, that's Oh my God. Well said. Yeah. You no, know, so. it's, it's such a good point that it was a bigger inflection point than even they, these two movies capture it because they, they both have boats in them, but, but like, but there's a thing that, that you're saying that I remember. So back in 2002 or whatever, do you remember how 
magazines like Entertainment Weekly used to put out issues that were like, you know, summer movie previews or, you know, fall movie previews. And they'd list every single movie, big movies that were coming out. They do a blurb. They'd have, they probably released the first stills. It's the kind of thing that is all over the internet now, but at that time you would read it in an actual magazine. I kid you not. And I remember looking through those. I always liked looking through them to see what was going to be coming out, see the pictures. And I remember seeing the Pirates of the Caribbean one. And this picture of a famous still now of Johnny Depp in the crazy makeup and Orlando Bloom. And I just looked at it and I was like, that is going to flop. Like, I just remember thinking, like, that seems like such a mess to me. And it's because I was coming at it. And I was completely wrong, of course. But I was coming at it from the mindset of a 23-year-old or whatever I was who was coming out of the 1990s, the late 90s filmmaking world. Filmmakers like Paul Thomas Anderson and David O. Russell and Wes Anderson, and they were at the top. And then the big budget stuff was like coming from Spielberg. And it was, you know, things had been like, you know, Saving Private Ryan. Like there were movies or, or what would come out that I would love that year, Master and Commander. Like there was a different, I figured at that time, there was a segmenting going on a little more in the audience for theatrical and the idea that they were going to try to touch all those corners and they were going to have at the center of it this wacky Johnny Depp thing. And it was going to be this seafaring, expensive, you know, seafaring movies, notoriously expensive. And I just thought that that's not going to work, you know. Um, and that was the moment that that turned. If you thought about it today, you would think, oh, yeah, of course, it's based on a ride. Like, of course, they're doing that. It's IP. It's Johnny Depp is the big star. And like, oh, they're making an original like, oh, it's based on a book that no one's read. And it stars Russell Crowe. And it's serious. Like, no, that's not going to work. So things have changed so much in the 17 years that it's completely flipped, I think, in terms of expectation of what will be successful and what won't which I also think goes to the point that you should always look to expand on, you should always look to upend expectations and take chances. And I really, even just watching the trailers and clips of Master and Commander when I put the post together for No Film School, I was thinking about how I missed when movies looked and sounded like that. It's so sumptuous, for lack of a better word, in the way it's photographed on 35 and the way it's, it, you can feel it and hear it and the lighting is and, it, and, it, and it's big and expensive. And that's just not the way like big and expensive things don't look and feel that way anymore. They're not dark and moody. They're not their color palettes don't look like that. They're not everybody's wearing the same colored uniform. You know, like it's just like there's no way you see those elements or hear those elements constructed in that manner in a major movie right now. It is a different world than it was, absolutely, in every way. It's a far side of a different world, you could say. I'm just on a pun. I was trying to, I I was trying to find a pun, but I couldn't figure it out. But I, I like yeah. it. All right. So, <laughs> up next, we are also going to talk about a popular show called The Boys and its takedown of superhero culture, which is actually sort of a really interesting follow-up on The Master and Commander. Because, you know, in the 90s, superhero movies were a joke. Like, I was a high school kid who loved comic books in the 90s, and I never thought about comic book movies because they were really bad. I mean, they were terrible. I rented a couple. Known for being bad, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> mystery yeah, were, mystery they, Men was good. I remember seeing Mystery Men with my friends in high school and being like, this a good superhero movie. But of course, Mystery Men was a comedy and not built on really pre-existing. I, like, you know, it was a, a fresh new and take. It was such a 90s take, right? Yeah. Because it was like all these 90s comics, like off-kilter character actors. Like Now we live post-Pirates. We now live in a superhero-dominated uh, movie universe. And The Boys is a show on, I believe, Amazon that is sort of critiquing that and looking at it from a uh, fresh and sort of more realistic perspective. I, it's a bummer. I had a friend who had a pitch 10 years ago that he tried to get made, which was a TV show about a injury lawyer in a superhero universe. And uh, I was like, <laughs> oh, that is a great show. I would totally watch that. I wish he had gotten that made. He, and, he never got that made, but it was brilliant. It was trying now. Just be like, it's better call Saul meets the boys. <laughs> but it's basically, I mean, I'm sure that like the boys in some ways is dealing with that in a bigger way, where it is an attempt to look at what superheroes would look like in a when there are realistic repercussions to their actions. And uh that's a really fascinating take, I thought. Yeah, we also have a story up on No Film School about this, how the boys exposes what's wrong with superhero culture, and it comes out of a video from the take. Um, and, the, and the idea, look, The Boys was a comic book itself about comic book characters who abuse their powers and the people who try to contain them or rein them in. And it's, you know, the abuse of power essentially like it, it kind of molds and morphs out of where Watchmen was sort of that where Watchmen broke ground as the graphic novel, not the movie or the HBO series, but broke ground as a hey, superheroes, like, you know, maybe there's moral complexity and ambiguity to this idea. Uh, and and The Boys is a riff on that. And I remember when the comic book was being released, I had friends at the time who were, you know, raving about it. And it's it's sort of upending of this idea. And, you know, now there's the show on Amazon Prime and people are learning about it and recognizing it for the first time. And we are, it, the timing is great because we've become so saturated in what superheroes are. So personally, I think of the superhero genre as a inheritor or a progeny or a descendant of the Western in American culture, where it's about the black hat, the white hat, it's about right and wrong. And it's where we play out some of our some of our issues of the day or morality plays. It doesn't do it for me cinematically the way the Western does, just my own taste, but I see it as being sort of tied into that. And it has certainly replaced the Western in its, what's the word I'm looking for? And it's everywhereness. I know there's a better word for that that I'm blanking on. Um, pervasiveness, <laughs> but there's a lot to explore. You know, the Western had its end of the West phase. And I think the boys represents an exploration of an end of the superhero era and they called it revisionist Western and it stretched on for decades. So I'm not saying we're, we're going to stop seeing these anytime soon, but the boys could be like, uh, you know, a wild bunch or a uh, unforgiven, like we're starting to get to the territory of the superhero genre in the mainstream where we're looking at the dark side of it, where we're questioning the, the clear cutness of it. And again, of course, this is predated by Watchmen and also the comic book of the boys. But I think we're entering interesting creative territory where we poke at, and I think for all of those out there who are interested in, in takes or developing something interesting, this is 
I think a good place to go. It's like, if you're going to do, you, you, do you have a spin or a twist on what we expect about superheroes and your friend's idea about the personal injury lawyer in that universe is great. It feels like there's so many un, uh, less explored little corners, perhaps, you know, every one of these superhero movies like ends with cities and rubble. Like what about, the construction companies that rebuild the <laughs> I, I don't know. But like there's stuff to look at. Like there's stuff to look at there, I think. I think all filmmakers have an obligation to accept some of the limits of our reality. And one of the limits of our current reality is that like pre-existing IP and and superhero stories are what are connecting with the zeitgeist. So the same way that if you were a filmmaker in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you owe it to yourself to see if you can tell a story in the Western genre because it was so big at that time. I think thinking about like, all right, well, what stories would I be interested in telling in the superhero space is an interesting challenge to think to yourself. Like you might not be interested in a super traditional superhero story, but you might be interested in finding sort of a non-traditional angle on that superhero space. And I think that is a really sort of an interesting way to dive into, you know, I mean, we can, we can complain about where the market is. We can also try and change where the market is, but we can also look at where the market is and see where we can play within that. And, um, that's, that's, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. I love, I love that. I'm, you know, my personal, I'm more of more likely to complain, but I implore people to look at it and think about it. Like you just said, like, what if before making uh Rio Bravo in the early sixties, by then what Westerns had been prominent for decades. What if Howard Hawks, said like, God, I'm sick of Westerns. I'm sick of making Westerns. I'm not making another Western. Bravo is a beloved Western, you know, considered one of the great Westerns of all time. So there's certainly places to go. We're not that many decades into this superhero splurge. Like there's there's things to do. There's ways to explore it that we still haven't seen. Um, and And great established filmmakers could do it. New voices could do it. Sam Peckinpah came along and started changing how the Western was done. He started with some established Western stars and he started twisting and turning what that what those identities were and what those archetypes were. And that lights a creative spark, I think. Like you can say I'm not interested in it, maybe you're not, but if it is the the dominant genre and the and the thing that's going to get dollars like can you tell the story within that framework that's unique and um plenty of people continued to do that into the 70s into the 80s unforgiven is a 90s movie dances with wolves is a 90s movie they are takes on the on the western although unforgiven was written in the 70s clint just waited to make it until he was old enough to star in it that is a good point some of these stories were very old. <laughs> I mean, they're Western, but I think that there's um, there's ways to continue. And there's ways in which there's crossover, of course, because I love the movie Logan. Logan was 100% like a Western superhero crossover, even self-aware of that. Just play in that sandbox, and that's what The Boys does. And people love it because it does that, because it does a new thing with the familiar universe. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, moving on to something that doesn't do a new thing with the familiar universe. We're going to now talk about the highest grossing international theatrical release of 2020, a movie called A Little Red Flower. And if you're wondering yourself, why have I not heard of this movie? It's because it was primarily released, I mean, it was released internationally and it's made $167 million at the theatrical box office. However, it's a Chinese film and it did a tremendous amount of its money in China because China was able to reopen its theaters better because they managed their coronavirus outbreak way better than they did than uh, the United States, the United Kingdom and to some extent, Canada have. So they were able to actually make a little money in the theatrical box office this year, which is interesting and good for them. And, um, uh, you know, uh, respect to countries like Vietnam and New Zealand that actually managed to, to do it well. I have a collaborator I've been working with in Vietnam and like his life is normal. <laughs> his kids are in school because Vietnam <laughs> managed to like do it right. And you're like, wow, I'm, I'm impressed and jealous all at once. However, Little Red Flower is not just an interesting story because it uh, made so much money theatrically in 2020. I mean, 167 million would not have gotten you the number one spot in 2019. You need billions for that. But in 2020, that's a pretty good theatrical haul considering so many countries were locked down. But what's actually interesting about this story is there is a pretty good case to be made that A Little Red Flower is a Chinese remake of a film called A Fault in Our Stars. If you don't know A Fault in Our Stars, it's likely that you're too old. Uh, a Fault in Our Stars was a very popular movie that came out, what, 2013, 2014, based on a John Green book. It's uh, Ansel Elgert and um, I want to say Shania Twain, but it's not Shania Twain. Um, <laughs> but, She's like a uh, quarter of Shania Twain's age. Yes, but um, an actress I really like who was wonderful in The Descendants, and her name escapes me. Um, and uh, they were in this movie, uh, Fault in Our Stars, about two kids with cancer who fall in love. And uh, it was very successful. Uh, going back to our four quadrants discussion with, with the younger quadrants. If you are in your 40s now, you probably only heard of it reading about it in the trades. Now, there was some discussion of making a Chinese market version of A Fault in Our Stars. Those conversations happened with a producer named Han Yan. Those talks fell apart. And Han Yan was involved in the creation of A Little Red Flower. So Disney owns the right to a fault of our stars. They're mulling litigation right now. It's an interesting story for lots of reasons. First off, if you follow tech, this has been a tech conversation for a very long time. I mean, there are a lot of Chinese companies in the last few years that have gotten very good at, I mean, first off, let's just be clear. There are Chinese companies that are really good at making original work. DJI is based in Shenzhen, Chinese company making drones. Nobody can touch what they do. They're phenomenal. So we are not saying every company in China does nothing but make knockoffs. We are not saying that at all. We are There are definitely innovative Chinese companies that are at the forefront of technology. We have to acknowledge that at this point. However, now if you listen to NPR Planet Money, they had a really amazing story about a Chinese company that was knocking off a, a very popular superglue to the point where they were using the same model in their ads that were in the American superglue ads, which was the company owner's wife. And they, you know, they the, at, at a trade show, they were confronted and they were like, no, we hired that model. And the American company was like, that, that's my wife, sir. That's my wife. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it's a, it is a thing. The, the copyright relationships and trademark relationships between US and China are not strong. And it is apparently very hard to enforce. 
And so this is something that shows up across technologies. There's a lot of industrial fraud. And one thing that happens quite a lot is an American company will hire a Chinese factory to make something. And then that Chinese factory will make the thing and will also make a, a knockoff of the thing using everything they learned making the thing. Um, and this is a big problem in the film industry as well. There are wonderful Chinese made products and then there are knockoff Chinese made products. And, you know, there are a variety of qualities and brands and every once in a while you run across products where you're like, whoa, this is amazing that you are able, you know, I'll just keep saying DJI because their drones are phenomenal, but there are a bunch of others and they make amazing stuff that is truly innovative and interesting and different. And then there are a bunch of knockoffs. This is an interesting case because this is a case where it's intellectual property. Now, if you know, as the article points out, you can't copyright an idea. You can only copyright material and implementation of an idea. So if they use the same lines, which obviously it's translated to Chinese, they're not going to use verbatim lines anyway. Um, and if you change the names and if you change the plot a little bit, you're sort of in free reign. And some arguments can make that like, that's no different than what Shakespeare did. I mean, Shakespeare took earlier stories from history and from Italian history and and took earlier plays and just rewrote them using very similar ideas. And, and so, you know, we've always had a lot of respect in the arts for like, it is the implementation that matters. However, the poster is also kind of similar. And that's where you get into this weird space where you're like, when the poster's too similar and when someone worked on... You know, and when a member of the team was working on the local adaptation and then decided to abandon it, but make their own film that's the same concepts, it is tricky. It's also really tricky because, you know, everybody who moves to LA and has a screenplay idea is like, oh, well, I don't want to tell you because you could steal it. And that's usually seen as like a mark of like a newcomer because you're like, well, nobody's really going to steal your idea. It's it's almost always just cheaper to buy your idea from you and not worry about litigation. Like you should register your scripts with the WGA, script that does happen, but it's not super common with new filmmakers because it's just so much easier to pay them off than to risk litigation. But this is a case of like the fault in your stars was a huge hit. John Green is very successful. And they decided it was cheaper to not buy the IP and just make a knockoff. And that's very interesting to me. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes one of the reasons to do re register the WGA and just have everything cleared legally that it's yours. So you can have chain of title as they call it. And then when you get into the later stages of whatever happens to your film. You just want to have clear ownership and a paper trail and all of that. So it's always smart to do it, but it's really not for the reason that a lot of younger folks or people starting out assume, which is that, yeah, someone's going to steal their idea. The funny thing about the stealing the idea thing that I always, that I always come back to is like, it's so much harder to execute. Like, it, like great ideas are rare, but great ideas get tossed aside constantly for, for <laughs> all, all kinds of reasons. Like, <laughs> just because it's like, well, no, that's too expensive or or even a great idea might even make it all the way to the one yard line. And then it's just like, yeah, the star back down. And then like, eh, like, I like, again, I think your friends earlier incorporating something like your friend's idea of a personal injury lawyer, and like we're even putting it out on the podcast. Like, like, it's a great idea. Like there's a version of it that could 100% exist. But like great ideas come to Hollywood to die a lot of the time or come to anywhere to die. Like, it's just, it's hard to execute. Like that's the, that's the tricky part. Having a great idea is just a first step on a long journey. And if you can execute it into a great screenplay, you're still like, you know, it's still an uphill battle as so many people know. So I think what gets tricky is 
when there are these glaring similarities and you run into the complications and then maybe you start looking at big legal fees and then the question is really like how how much money is the studio behind the project going to be able to just throw at like settling out of court or giving people what maybe they are owed and how much money do the people who feel that they've been stolen from have to put behind pursuing those ends you know I don't know how to really quantify this or get into it, but think about it from this perspective. It's expensive to get a lawyer ever for anything. They bill by the hour. An entertainment lawyer is going to cost you. So if you don't have a lot to spend, unless the lawyer sees in your case a big payday down the road, there's not necessarily going to be enough for you to spend on getting a lawyer involved to pursue what may not ultimately get you anything, you know, like, like if the, if the similarities aren't like super clear, like our headline, I, and I'm going down this road because our headline for the story in no film school was, did this blockbuster rip off the fault in our stars? And then the lead was similarities are there, but how can you stop a major movie from stealing your ideas? You know, a major movie stealing your ideas, they're going to be careful if it happens. It's an interesting concept, but, I think at the end of the day, it's hard to prove that it was truly stolen. And like you said, it's not sort of the same concept. Like, so, like you can't say that that kids having cancer is – and nobody has the trademark or the copyright on that. No, I actually have copywritten kids having cancer. The phrase kids having cancer. <laughs> if you write anything about kids with cancer, you actually owe me a payment. I think actually you owe kids in the hall, right? Because wasn't oh, that like yeah. one of their bits? <laughs> yes, I think it was. So like that's dating both of us, but kids in the hall in the 90s like got there first. <laughs> so all these movies are ripping them off. Yeah. we. I really want to see a, a Kevin Foley, uh, John Green <laughs> epic rap battle on YouTube <laughs> to settle who has rights to the story. Maybe just put like a perfectly serious movie like The Fault in Our Stars around Kevin Foley doing the lead. Yes. Bring it. All right. Up next, Wi-Fi 6. Why should you care as a filmmaker? I was really glad that we, we this is a story we had up on No Film School, but I was really glad we ran it because it was something that I had only started learning about recently. And like, you know, I am the tech guy around here, but I, I there's too much. There's too much technology to keep up on. There's just so many things to pay attention to. So what is Wi-Fi 6? If you're old enough, you remember that Wi-Fi used to be like 811B, 811C, 811N, 811AC. The Wi-Fi organization, the Wi-Fi coalition was like, these names are dumb. We're just going to call every new generation of Wi-Fi a new number because it's easier to keep track of. So Wi-Fi 6 is the newest. I think AC is it's called Wi-Fi 3 and Wi-Fi 4 was 811N or whatever. But now we're just at Wi-Fi 6. There is no 802.11, whatever. It's just Wi-Fi 6. It's the newest format of Wi-Fi. And it matters to filmmakers for a couple of reasons. First off, you know, I'm one of those people that I had the same airport base station for like 10 years and then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden I needed to like be on a work Zoom and have my wife on a work Zoom at the same time. And I did a little research and discovered, holy cow, my 10-year-old wireless base station actually was not strong enough to keep up with it. I always thought that the, that the bottleneck was your connection to the internet, your DSL or your cable. But actually, whatever Wi-Fi network you have set up in your home does matter. I upgraded to a Wi-Fi 6 router, and it made life better. 
more devices could connect to it with with more power and Wi-Fi 6 is specifically targeted at that. So first off, if you're a filmmaker working from home, trying to have multiple people connect at once, going Wi-Fi 6 is worth it. But moreover, and the article did a really nice job breaking down who cares about Wi-Fi 6 and who doesn't, we're starting to see Wi-Fi 6 show up in various um, tools that we use as filmmakers. So, you know, we're not going to see it in microphones, according to Deity, which makes sense. But we are starting to see it in cameras. The GoPro now supports Wi-Fi 6, which means you can get more GoPro cameras connected on a single network at the, at the same time. Because Wi-Fi 6 is all about enabling more devices on your network at once, keeping their full bandwidth. It used to be... With earlier implementations of Wi-Fi, they were really designed around the idea that like a house might have one laptop. But now your average house, everybody has a laptop and there's iPads and there's phones and there's your watch has Wi-Fi and all this stuff. So Wi-Fi 6 is much more like making sure many devices can work. And why does that matter? Well, you know, if you're working on a GoPro show or if you're working on a normal show, but you're rigging up like 10 GoPros around the space to get a bunch of different angles or safety shoots, the ability to have them all connect to the same Wi-Fi network, get that signal reliably to your iPad where you're, or your computer where you're monitoring that and get good signal out of all of them is actually kind of a big deal. And so, you know, we are seeing Wi-Fi 6 uh, start to roll out more film things. And it's something that you should be aware of and know exists as a filmmaker. So I, I, I liked that article. It wasn't like newsy. There was no like big announcement from the Wi-Fi coalition, but it was just clear that, you know, this is something you should know. And it's something I didn't know until I had to figure it out. I love that this was covered on No Film School, but I love this news in general. I think this is a great example of where this has huge Im impact and implications for a creative or a filmmaker. But this is interesting to anybody who is, you know, this is good to know. Like, this is something where you want to understand how Wi-Fi works and what your best, what what's your optimum connection speed. And like, it's even like if you've got a family and you got, you know, or you're in one of these... Like I, th I realize I'm about to lay out one of these commercials for things where there's like a family and one kid's playing the video games and the other kid's watching blah, 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 and someone's texting. But like you want to get the best possible connectivity no matter who you are, right? And you want to understand why. And you want to understand the reasoning behind what you might purchase and why it might cost more and what the generations are. And so this is really valuable information. And I would personally like to know what are the best Wi-Fi 6 routers? What should I buy? How do I know? And, and these are all things I want to explore. You know, I love seeing the story and learning about how it works because similarly to many people, I think, I'm just kind of like, okay, I got the new router with my, you know, whatever deal and it stinks. And I'm assuming maybe it's because my provider stinks or my connection's bad or I'm too far from it or whatever, you know, or someone else is streaming a movie right now. You know, it could also just be that you need to get Wi-Fi 6 router. Which one did you get? So I went for the TP-Link Archer, um, and I've been insanely happy with it. It's very easy to manage. It has a little, it has like a built-in media server where you can like attach a hard drive to it, and then you can buy movies and download them to the hard drive so that if your kid needs to watch a movie while you're on a Zoom call, they can watch it off the hard drive and not take up your streaming bandwidth. I mean, one of the beauties of all of the streaming media content in the world is that you have everything available to you, but it is still sometimes when you can find movies that are available with digital download, which not all are, but some are, and, you know, your kid would like to watch something and both of their parents are on Zoom calls, um, that can be a real nice thing to have them watch it off the hard drive directly. So that is why I ended up going for the TP-Link, and uh, I've been incredibly happy. 
It's like an impressive Wi-Fi 6 is one of those things where I was like, oh, wow, this is actually a legit improvement. A lot of times in technology, you, you buy the upgraded thing and you're like, I don't know if this is any different. And certainly with two people working from home with a kid during COVID, Wi-Fi 6 was an improvement. <laughs> um, absolutely. Our next story is, can you build an artificial sun? So this YouTuber, a guy named DIY Perks, set up to build an artificial sun, which is super duper cool. Now, to be clear, on film sets, we make artificial sunlight all the time. Usually, it requires a giant generator, like a, and then, you know, you're, you're putting up a 12K or you're putting up some other big lighting unit and you're getting it as far away from your scene as you can and you you want it far away so the light rays are more parallel and you want it big so that it feels more like the sun and you get less uh, drop off from inverse square law and all of those units. However, that's kind of expensive and this YouTuber, DIY Perks, which is a great name, built a setup where, you know, it's like a thousand dollars in parts and it uses an old uh, satellite dish for its parabolic dish and then you 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 build your own LED unit. Now, I think for filmmakers, you should just like go buy an Aperture 600D, but you mount it to this um, satellite dish, which is parabolic. And what's fun is that if you shine a light into a parabolic dish that you've covered in reflective tape, it makes the light parallel. That's, that's sort of what the parabola does when you shine into it from its nodal point. And what's nice about the satellite dishes is they have an arm that is supposed to mount the receiver in the... Uh, nodal point. So you go on Craigslist or Facebook ads or wherever, and you buy an old satellite dish and you tape over it with mirror tape and you mount your light in that point. Or if you follow his tutorial, you custom build your own LED light. I think that's a little bit much when you can just buy, you know, I, I mean, for the amount of output he's getting from his unit, you could probably get it away with a 120D, but get a 300D or 600D from Aperture. And um, you get this incredibly bright parallel light and the parallel light really does look more like sunlight than sort of a scattered light and you should get a more even drop off but then he goes one step further which is super cool so we all know that uh the sky is blue because of a phenomenon called Rayleigh scattering right and that has to do with the way in which light is (laughs) but yeah that is sort of a uh is one of them jokes right (laughs) when a kid asks you why the sky blue you're like Rayleigh scattering so and it has to do with the way in which uh light scatters when interacting with the atmosphere that gives it that the the sky the blue color but it also affects the quality of the light coming through it the light itself isn't blue but it feels different because of the Rayleigh scattering and so he builds a water tank and suspends soap in it and the soap in the water tank creates Rayleigh scattering and Honest to God, you look at it and it looks blue when the light's going through it, but the light coming through it's not blue, much like sunlight. And it it's an incredibly impressive combination of things that really do make for sunlight for like under a grand. Now, what what would be fun? I mean, I'm tempted to buy an old satellite dish and make a mirror dish out of it. Um, it would be really great if some film industry person like Matthews would make like a four by four or a six by six frame. Um, like a Rayleigh scattering frame that, you know, it would, it would be solid, but, but like they would have whatever liquid in the suspension do the Rayleigh scattering. That would be awesome. I hope that someone comes out with that inspired by this video, but it was impressive. I was like, oh, I've mimicked sunlight on film sets for 20 years and I wish I had this. The, the setup as he lays it out in the video is really complicated to the extent that it wouldn't like travel to set easily. It'd be nice to see some people make some sort of like a fold up caseable 
truckable version. But I tell you what, if I was building a permanent set installation, if I was like a YouTuber, like for instance, if I had a barn, I would make a, a stage where I could make YouTube tutorials all the time. I would totally build this in there to have like a cool sunlight effect coming in the window or whatever. I live in Brooklyn. I don't have the space for a permanent set, but I think it's really interesting for permanent set installations. And I think someone could make a truckable version that would be super awesome. So thank you, DIY Perks. Yeah, I mean, it's a very cool thing to be able to do to augment how you're shooting and, you know, create that look when you need it. Because, you know, in the old days, what were your alternatives? Well, I mean, if you go back to Edison, Edison built his original stage, Black Maria, and it was on a turntable. So he could turn the set to face the sun all day long as the sun moved across the sky. I did not know that. Yes. The sun would be moving. And that was in New Jersey, which doesn't have the sunshine of Southern California. Although if anyone ever tells you the film uh, industry moved out to Southern California because of the sunlight, remind them that's a lie. The reason the film industry moved to Southern California was to escape uh, Edison's patents. And also because New York was a union town and LA was non-union and they wanted cheap labor. The film industry being in LA was outsourcing jobs from New York. It was like big corporate tycoons being like, oh, we can get cheaper labor because it's non-union. Within about 20 years, the unions had come to LA and labor prices went up. But like, that's why it's in LA. It's not the sunlight. It was the Wild West still. They yeah, had real cowboys. Probably, yeah, real <laughs> cowboys. And real cowboys were not in unions at the time. Although I do think <laughs> there should be a cowpoke union and I would support that. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is... So Edison built it and it was on a giant turntable, massive, so that, you know, as the sun moved across the sky, you could keep reorienting the set to use the sun for the sky. I mean, early film socks were so slow. There was pretty much, and film lights hadn't really been invented yet. You know, lighting with the sun was your best option and turning the set to keep the sun shooting directly on you was the smartest move. And uh, so that's what he did, which is pretty smart. Yeah. Dropping that film history knowledge. <clears throat> I love it. All right, uh, my pluggables are, uh, I'm really hoping you guys are all listening to this and and Trump's no longer president. I'm just really hoping for that. I'm like plugging for that. It's 48 hours from now that you guys all get to listen to this. And that is what I'm plugging. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain. There's a lot of political stuff on there because there's no, you can't be apolitical anymore. I'm not on my Instagram. My Instagram is just pictures of cameras and my daughter. Um, and uh, yeah, I got no like shows to plug this year, but uh I was shooting over the weekend a COVID safe shoot, and it was amazing to be back on set. Oh, and uh, oh, we uh, got to talk about that then next time. Let's talk next about time. COVID safe. Yeah, yeah. That's George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. Uh, you can find all of this content we talked about and more at nofilmschool.com. Check out our Facebook page, like us, follow us on Twitter at No Film School. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Send us questions at ask at nofilmschool.com. And uh, I just you know want to add that we love hearing from everyone. And don't forget, we'll be talking about Sundance a little bit on No Film School. Sundance, the film festival, will be different this year in 2021, but we will have some coverage up on nofilmschool.com, so be sure to check that out as well. Thanks so much. 